This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the March 28th, 1943 edition of the NBC World News Parade. It includes updates on the war from Europe and the Pacific, as well as commentary from correspondent John Vander Cook. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. Thanks for listening, and please enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. WMAQ. Good afternoon. The W.A. Schaefer Pen Company presents World News Parade with the historian commentator Upton Close. Today, Mr. Close presents as his guest... John Vandercook, speaking from New York. This program is brought to you each Sunday by the makers of Schaefer's Lifetime Feather-Touch Fountain Pens, the only pens identified by the white dot and Scrip, S-K-R-I-P, successor to ink. Scrip is the easiest of all writing fluids on critical metal and rubber parts. It makes all pens write better, last longer, require less servicing, keeps pens clean. Scrip keeps writing neat and clean, too, because... It dries so fast a blotter is unnecessary. Get Scrip in the double-size Scripwell bottle. It saves valuable packing material as well as money. You get twice the quantity of the world's finest writing fluid for just a dime more. For better pen protection, always use Schaefer's Scrip. And now, Mr. Upton Close. Headlining the parade, Allied air banners fly victorious from the Solomon Islands to Berlin. Big American bombers have raided the railway yards at Rouen, France. Overnight, the British dropped twice as many explosives on the German capital as the Luftwaffe ever dropped on London. The bombing of another Jap base in New Guinea puts the weird name of Weewack in the parade. MacArthur, finding 250 Jap planes grounded at Rabaul, has additional proof that an enemy move is in the making, while continued American raids on Kiska give similar warning to Tojo, who once again is operating at Attu in the Aleutians. Challenging the RAF for first place in the week's parade swim the sharks of modern war German U-boats. Pledged to kill and kill, they turn allied sea lanes to graveyards with claims mounting hourly. Hitler, surrendering control of the army to Keitel, is reported in command of the Navy. As the Russian war front swings into view, Red armies drive on Smolensk. Unusual weather plays hob with the offenses of either side, and the Nazis' wedge from Kharkov hasn't widened dangerously. Better weather greets the parade in North Africa, but the Marath line still blocks the path of the British 8th Army, although there are signs of an impending breakthrough. Germany prepares for the inevitable by building more forts and denuding occupied countries of manpower. Rebellion grows in France. Vichyites continue to desert Laval for Giraud, and de Gaulle, moving toward North Africa, paves the way to meeting Giraud with soft and, for him, conciliatory words. Mussolini's balcony exhibitionists duck for cellars as RAF planes roar overhead, withholding their fire because a near-miss on Il Duce might mean a direct hit on the Vatican where the Pope convalesces from influenza. 
but chalk scrawls on Malta's bomb-gutted buildings reading, Bomb Rome, may be the handwriting on the wall for Rome. Dante's inferno of food problems burns up the parade. The mess indicates butcher shops and grocery stores should display doorway signs reading, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Chester Davis runs for Washington to put out the fire and become the fourth boss man of that name, along with OWI's Elmer Davis, WLB's William Davis, and Norman Davis of the Red Cross. What a barbershop quartet they would make. A big tax clock ticks away, wasting time in the parade, as the slogan becomes for taxpayers awaiting their fate, pay as you go crazy. A picture of black-brown defiance, punctuated with an unlighted cigar, John L. Lewis romps through the Truman Committee. Lewis, his own food furnace, amply stoked, wants the bellies of his miners inflated. Says no government agency, meaning WLB, can keep 238 economists on the payroll and get anything done, which makes better sense than his veiled strike threat. Empty float in the parade carries the banner of Madame Jiang Kai-shek, who is going to speak to you in person this morning, on our Schaefer Hour. This charming ambassadress couldn't appear because of doctor's orders, but we'll hear something about her home life next week when a lady who lived with her family is going to talk here with me. The big end piece in the parade is ushered in with decidedly fishy aroma, advertising renewal of the Russo-Jap Treaty. We'll interpret that news development after we hear from our guest. The first carload of Gaiuli sap went to market yesterday. That's rubber in the California parade. And Bill Jean turned out an experimental batch of his rubber with a 10-to-1 yield out of his Paris seed. And from England comes word that English private motorists will get some American rubber. And there are new weapons in the parade. Little victory airplane carriers sliding down the line here in California and the anti-tank rocket gun called the bazooka, making victory music. John Vandercook, NBC and Schaefer correspondent, stands by in New York, ready to direct the parade for the next few minutes. John, from your wealth of experience and observation, do you think an enemy air raid on the United States is a possibility? I should say, Upton, that possible is exactly the right word. Air raids on the United States are a distinct possibility. A possibility, perhaps, rather than a probability. But both our Axis enemies today do possess the means to attack not only our coasts, but also points in the Middle West. The United States at present is in no risk of having to undergo any such heavy, incessant mass attacks from the air as the British have suffered, or what the Germans are now getting on a vastly greater scale. But sporadic raids can happen. Whether they will come is entirely up to the Axis leaders. That decision is out of our hands. Though what would happen to those enemy air raiders when they got here is a matter very much in our hands. Those hands today are clenched into very capable defensive fists. Americans thus far have not known the crashing horror of German air bombing and the bright hell of incendiary fires for two chief reasons. The first is that Hitler, when he was building his giant war machine, did not specially prepare for them. The other reason is that by the far-sighted acts of our government beginning long before Pearl Harbor, we have ably prepared against them. The leaders of Germany until 1941 did not think they would have to fight the United States, at least until England was beaten and until they were quite ready to take us on alone. They overestimated the American isolationist sentiment. Therefore, the types of German warplanes and the factories that built them were originally designed to deal only with nearer enemies. The commonest early types of Nazi bombers, the famous Heinkels and Junkers, were constructed to remain only from five to seven hours in the air. Their top range, when loaded with explosives, is just over a thousand miles. Those medium-range Nazi bombers still fill the bill for the work they have to do in North Africa, in Russia, and over Britain. As a result, the Nazi war planners paid little attention to types of war planes which are capable of crossing an ocean, exactly the type in which we have specialized. 
The Germans now have a few planes capable of doing that job. Though when they've filled up with enough gas for a round trip, they can probably carry a very small payload of bombs. Short-range Nazi bombers can also reach our shores, if they ride the first lap on the decks of aircraft carriers. Only one, the Graf Zeppelin, is positively known to exist, though there may be others. But German carriers and direct flight bombers alike would have to run a very dangerous gauntlet to get here. Our first defense is the British and American Navy and the combined Allied air fleets that keep watch over all exits from German-occupied Europe. But we have other sentry posts along the whole Atlantic road. It is one of the duties of the American garrison in Iceland to watch the northern sea and air approaches to this continent. The stepping stone of Greenland, which the Germans would like to use for an aerial swoop against us, is under constant American guard. Other alert armed watchers are stationed in Newfoundland. Just the same, they may try it. The German civilians at the receiving end now of almost daily Allied air raids would welcome the news that America, too, was being dosed with the same disagreeable medicine. And Hitler, who lies often but not always, has promised retaliation. Apart from the reasons of German home morale, responsible American officers that I've talked to feel that just now, for purely military reasons, Nazi raids against American industrial centers, naval bases, and shipyards might also be well worthwhile. The Pacific coast seems to be probably safer. The Japs have no planes capable of a round-trip trans-Pacific flight. Jap bombers would have to be brought in range by aircraft carriers past many watchful eyes. But there, too, they might make it. Pearl Harbor was smashed by carrier-borne Jap planes. And history can always repeat itself. And now, back to Upton Close in Hollywood. Thank you, John Vandercook. I wish you'd talk, too, about coming over the North Pole, but we'll get into that someday. Now let's return for a look at that last float in our week's parade, the Russian-Japanese Fishing Treaty, renewed late as usual, at Kwebyshev on Thursday by Vice Commissar Lozovsky and Ambassador Sato. It is not an attractive exhibit for Americans who wonder how and when we are going to overcome the chief obstacle to direct attack upon Japan and direct aid to China and Korea, that huge obstacle being the untouchable gooseneck of Siberia and the peninsula of Kamchatka hanging down from it like a stubby fat feather. There are some among us who are so dominantly concerned with Germany and Europe that they like the thought that Russia's neutrality in the Pacific is keeping us on the beam as they interpret the beam. But such is no longer the official policy we have been assured by our own high command. Halsey at Nimitz of the Navy and Mr. Knox, who was once for all forgetting Hitler, first to have been... Uh, who was once all for getting Hitler first, have been lavished with promises that we are presently going to get Japan where she lives. And the incessant bombing of Kiska punctuates the promptness, uh, the prompter's whisper, keep your eyes on Alaska now. The priest explorer, Father Bernard Hubbard, who knows Alaska, whose knowledge our armed services have been drawing on, points out that the weather observation facilities granted Japan by Russia in the fishing treaty go beyond the accepted conventions of neutrality in wartime and to our detriment. Would we be unconcerned if, on the other side, Ireland were to lease a weather station to Germany? Or if Venezuela, scarcely farther away, were to give its neighbor's deadly enemy the run of its seas and ports? The truth of the matter likely is that we are far from unconcerned. But our high strategy, as devised, just does not cover the point of what to do about it now. Britain did something about Norway, but the rebound was disastrous because she was not ready to do enough. When Maxim Litvinov arrived over the Pacific in San Francisco on December 6, 1941, to end a long period of strained relations between Moscow and Washington, I met him at the Pan-American float, the only person present who had a personal acquaintance with him, 
and interviewed him for the National Broadcasting Company's audience. The next day, December 7, I gave my reactions. Reading between the lines of the interview, the realistic Russian policy of following the dictates of expediency if war should break out between Japan and the United States. A few minutes later came the flash that it had broken out. I spoke realistically about Russia. That does not bother the Russians, who are the most realistic speakers themselves in the world. It does bother their supersensitive admirers. We were given to understand that if we just kept still about Russia in the Pacific, enabling Stalin to play a fox-like game with Japan, Russia would soon be in helping us out. And we must not spoil that, as if anything that you or I could say would affect the basic realism of Stalin's decisions. Now we have seen the development of that realism to the point at which Russia trades the use of waters and weather posts to Japan in return for the privilege of taking American land-lease ships and goods through the Japanese Navy and of purchasing rubber and food from Japan. While we look baffled, Japan must be having some hearty laughs up her kimono sleeve. The key to the whole thing is, of course, American strength applied now, not later. It would be rushing in where the angel of history fears to tread to say that a Moscow relieved of menace in Europe would deliberately choose to crush Japan on the Pacific in our favor rather than to preserve or influence her. Russia historically needs Japan as an offset to reborn China as much as to any Western power in the Pacific. But now we can have the facilities of Siberia as readily as the Japs if we put the sea and air power in the North Pacific to go there and stay there. Just two notes about V-mail in the parade. A boy writes his parents from Africa that he was hit in the leg with shrapnel but within a few hours was comfortable in a base hospital hundreds of miles away. So efficient is our air ambulance service. He says, keep writing. Although delayed, the letters reach the boys sometime and are never stale to them. The second note comes from Washington. 2,000 sacks of mail lost in recent weeks by sinkings in the Atlantic. Couldn't have been V-mail or it would have been flown over. That's Larry Keating's pet subject, Larry. You can fortify our fighters with a secret weapon. The morale that comes with mail from home. Help in this struggle by writing frequent, cheerful letters to your friends and relatives in uniform. Send them letters. They'll fight better. It's essential that you use your government speed mail, V-mail, when writing overseas. That's V for victory. It saves valuable shipping space. And always write your V-mail letters with Schaefer's V-black script. It gives sharper, cleaner V-mail reproduction because black photographs best. V-Black Script is a lustrous ebony black writing fluid, finest in quality and performance. Available everywhere V-Mail stationery is sold. Ask for the double size, just 25 cents. And remember the name, Schaefer's V-Black Script. And listen to Schaefer's World News Parade with Upton Close each Sunday at this time. Sent to you by the W.A. Schaefer Pen Company, makers of Script. That's S-K-R-I-P, successor to Ink. The writing fluid that keeps your pen functioning at top efficiency. Remember, up and close for the Schaefer Pen Company next Sunday at this same time. This program came to you from Hollywood, and this is the National Broadcasting Company. Chicago WMAQ. 